0: This is Victoria, producer for The Felon File, a podcast on law enforcement history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains of the United States and beyond. Listen to In 39 Countries Around the World. Scott Lunsford hosts The Felon File. Scott is a retired American police sergeant. Background and intro music through purpleplanet.com.
1: Greetings, and welcome back to another episode of The Felon File. And as Victoria said, I am Scott Lunsford. I am your host today on The Felon File. And we are coming to you from the Blue Ridge Parkway overlook, overlooking the mountains of western North Carolina and into Tennessee. Recording from a mobile studio perched in one of the overlooks up here. We do appreciate everyone for listening, and after you're through, if you want to check out our website, you can go to felonfile.com or scottlunsford.com. And of course, no matter where you're listening from, let if you like the podcast, let somebody know about it. We're an amateur podcast, not a lot of bells and whistles, and we don't have any sponsors so just kind of a hobby for us now in today's shade of blue story we're going over the mountain so to speak from where i'm sitting right now monroe county tennessee it's on the eastern border of the united states state of tennessee the county seat is madisonville now in the early 18th century the area around monroe county was known as part of the traditional homelands of the Overhill Cherokee, a western subset of the Cherokee Nation. Archaeological studies in the county showed that the area was inhabited for thousands of years before the arrival of European settlers. Artifacts uncovered in the area date to as early as 7500 BC. Now there are some prominent people, let's say history-making individuals who called Monroe County, Tennessee, home. One individual, Sue Kerr Hicks, was a Tennessee lawyer. Uh, Yes, I said he. Well, get to that point in just a minute. He was a lawyer and a circuit court judge in the state of Tennessee. Hicks is probably best known as one of the instigators who assisted the prosecutor, William Jennings Bryan, in the 1925 trial of John Scopes, a Dayton, Tennessee teacher accused of teaching the theory of evolution in violation of the Tennessee state law, better known as the Scopes Monkey Trial. For publicity reasons, a group who later became known as the drugstore conspirators they decided to engineer a case that would test the constitutionality of the Butler Act, or the teaching of evolution in school. The group recruited a local football coach and substitute teacher, John T. Scopes, who was a friend of Sue's, the lawyer, to admit to teaching evolution. One conspirator, a gentleman by the name of George Rappelgeek, swore out a warrant for Scope's arrest and charges were filed the following day. The rest is literally history. Hicks' feminine first name inspired the song A Boy Named Sue, a Johnny Cash hit first performed in 1969. The song's writer, Shel Silverstein, had attended a judicial conference in Gallenberg, Tennessee in the 60s where Sue Hicks was a speaker getting, giving him the idea uh, for the song title after hearing the speaker, Sue Hicks, being introduced. Later, in some interviews, uh, Johnny Cash said he was really was unaware that Silverstein had any one person in mind when he wrote that song. Still, when the song did so well, he admitted that he did send Hicks two records, and two autographed pictures with the inscription to Sue, How Do You Do? If you're not familiar with the song, look it up on YouTube. Now let's get back to our main shade of blue story. Monroe County, Tennessee, 1875. Our main character in this shade of blue story, Mr. Jack Hunt, came from a pretty good family background. His dad was a prosperous farmer and businessman in Monroe County. Jack Hunt's father was said to be a sincere, honest, hard-working, and respected man. He had several sons and a couple of daughters. Jack was the youngest and had been allowed to do pretty much as he pleased most of his life, leading him to be a little bit on the wild and reckless side. Jack grew up having his own way. He was well off good-looking and, like I said, did as he pleased, and was a well-known troublemaker in the community, so to speak, but nothing major. Now, as he got older, he spent a lot of time drinking and carousing, as that type of individual was wont to do. Jack's father had an older gentleman living there on a tenant farm on his property. The man and his family were from Cherokee, North Carolina, a tenant of gentleman by the name of Mr. Clem Davis. And as you will find in any good farming story, there, of course, is the farmer's daughter. And this story is no exception. An attractive teenage young lady by the name of Margaret Ann Davis. Living close by, it didn't take too long for the two, Margaret and Jack, to discover each other. It was a good deal for both of them, living close to each other as they did. Jack and Margaret soon wanted to get married. Now She was about 18, and he was about 21. As happens often, the young girl had not seen the spoiled bully side of the man she wished to marry. Both dads were against the marriage because they thought the two kids were way too young but headstrong children tend to know what they or think they know what's better than their parents so they went snuck off and got married anyway soon after the wedding margaret's father moved out of the tenant house and returned to cherokee north carolina with the idea that the new couple could move into the tenant farmhouse and start their life together. The marriage went pretty well for the first two or three months, but old habits are hard to break, even for a young person. Jack had been a spoiled kid growing up, and this also carried on and over into his adult life. The drinking and bad actions followed Jack into his marriage. And, of course it's shown heavy drinking a lot of times will often lead to abuse which happened here as well now to give jack some credit the two visited her family in north carolina to reinforce or repair their relationship seeking some help jack was hoping to talk to margaret's father and getting some help and assistance with what was going on in his life but nothing really changed and they went back to Tennessee to the tenant farm on his dad's property. The abuse continued and increased to the point that Margaret threatened to leave him. Now Jack had a sister that lived about a mile from him and Margaret and on the morning of July 19, 1875 the couple being married for 10 months at around 9 o'clock in the morning Margaret Ann walked over to her sister-in-law's home knocked on the door. Now Jack's sister was married to a Mr. John Farmer who had also grown up in the community and was well known to Jack's family and was well known to Jack. Margaret arriving noticeably upset told the couple that she was very thirsty from the walk so John farmer, the husband, grabbed a water bucket, telling Margaret and his wife he was going to the spring to get some water. The spring house was about a half mile from the home and was used by many of the community's residents. Margaret sat down and began telling her story to her sister-in-law. Being upset, she told her sister-in-law she really didn't know what she was going to do. After the discussion began, soon afterwards, Jack entered the cabin. He walked into the room and sat down. It needs to be clarified and it's unknown at this time if he had waited for his brother-in-law to leave or he just arrived while following his wife. He sat down in the room where his wife and sister were at and not making any comment. He just sat This also caused, of course, his wife to go silent. This went on for about 10 minutes when Jack's sister broke the silence by saying, you two are a very queer couple. Well, of course, Jack jumped up by this and saying, why, what has she been telling you about me? And his sister responded with a simple, nothing. Angry and suspicious, Jack ordered Margaret to go home. Margaret stood up to her husband, there having her sister-in-law with her, telling him she would not go until she was ready. Now his authority now being challenged, Jack produced a pistol he had hidden in his clothes out of sight and fired off one shot in the direction of his wife. The bullet struck Margaret in the wrist. Surprised and terrified at what was unfolding in her home, Jack's sister ran out of the house and into the yard, quickly followed by Jack himself. Grasping her injured wrist, Margaret shakily followed them to the door, supporting herself by leaning against the front door frame, and she called out for help. Court records of the sister's statement and testimony recorded that Margaret was shouting out, Don't leave me! I'm shot! To which, which Jack responded by raising his pistol, pointing it towards his wife, and firing another shot. This time, the bullet went in between Margaret's fourth and fifth ribs, passed through her body and into the door front. Margaret fell to the floor, crying and moaning half in the house and half out. Jack's sister ran to Margaret lying on the ground in the doorway. The injured woman raised her head, looking at her sister-in-law saying, I'm gone. Pray. Can you pray? Repeating the request again, adding, I can't. Will you pray for me? And in just a few minutes, she was dead. It was at this point that John Farmer returned from the spring house and found his wife standing over a corpse. Jack ran off and headed for the hills. John Farmer notified the authorities and a search for Jack Hunt began. Now it really didn't take too long to locate Jack and take him into custody. He was brought back to the crime scene and confronted with the body, where his wife lay still in the doorway of his sister's house. Jack started to cry when he was asked why he did it. His only answer was, he didn't know. It must have been the devil that made him do it, he said. There you go. Blame somebody else or something else. Taken to the jail, he would later state he had been afraid she would leave him and go back to her father, which would cause her dad to come back over to Tennessee and kill him where he would have to leave town to keep from being killed. I should have thought about that sooner. Jack was taken to jail to await a murder trial. Now, while waiting for his trial to come up, Jack did take advantage of a situation that suddenly did come up. A young man by the name of Rapper. Yes, Rapper. A really cool name, but way before his time in 1870. He was being held in jail for stealing leather. With nothing really to do, rapper would just look out the barred windows. He noticed that one of the window bars was loose and could be manipulated. Continuing to look around, he found another window bar that was also loose. Now removing this bar, he now had access to the other parts of the jail. Taking that Piece with him as a pry tool, he was able to assist four other prisoners to leave their cell in the middle of the night, leading the men to the window that led outside. A gentleman by the name of Henry Crodent, of course Jack Hunt, and another prisoner by the last name of Rogers all slipped out the window. Crowden and Rogers were being held on federal revenue charges, meaning that they were blockaders or moonshiners, if you will. They were arrested after a gunfight there in Tennessee with a deputy marshal, Deputy Captain Duff. That itself is a pretty good Shade of Blue story for a later time. Now, the jailer woke in time to grab Rogers as he was going out the window and drag him back in but Jack Hunt, Henry Crodon and the rapper boy escaped around two o'clock in the morning, making it out of town before a general alarm was raised. Hunt in his hurry to leave, though, was barefooted, making his escape much more difficult and slower than the other two. The other two escapees were able to put a lot of distance between themselves and Jack relatively quickly. A sheriff posse was soon in pursuit. Now, unfortunately for Jack, he was a bit of a homebody and liked to stay in his comfort zone. Instead of leaving the area or heading out of state, he returned to his father's land to hide, thinking that his family would help him. Maybe they did, we really don't know. The family grew concerned, though, that Jack would end up being shot on sight, and he refused to turn himself in. His sister sent her husband mr john farmer again out to locate him and bring him back in safely john farmer with a deputy he knew personally and could trust to not shoot right on sight and allowing the brother-in-law to bring him safely in the two of them begin their search separate from the sheriff's posse they figured he was hiding somewhere on his dad's farm which was extremely extensive farm at the time. The two men were able to locate evidence of Hunt's passing and following a trail in the middle of a rainstorm they discovered Jack Hunt hiding atop a tree alongside a trail that he had been using on a regular basis. He was taken swiftly into custody and taken out of the wet weather and put back in the local county jail from where he had escaped. The establishment had been repaired and improved somewhat from Hunt's last visit. Jailer Silas Peace paid Farmer and the assisting deputy $50 in cash as a reward for retrieving Jack Hunt. Or as the newspapers called it, a $50 Lincoln Green. Jack Hunt was not only placed in the most secure cell in the jail, but was also chained to the floor to keep a recurrence of the previous episode from happening. Hunt maintained he had no purpose or motive for the killing and seemed indifferent to his situation. One of Jack's brothers was quoted in the paper saying, it was just like someone who did not have or understand situation or take it seriously he acted like it was no big deal now because of this his family tried to use an insanity defense even when his lawyer said he had never had a client that showed so little concern for his trial the murder trial itself was moved from Madisonville Tennessee to neighboring Athens Tennessee A change of venue because of the family's connections and the large number of relatives and friends they had in the community that was part of the jury pool. After testimony in the trial, the jury came back with a verdict of guilty of murder in the first degree. And the judge set the punishment that he would be hanged by the neck until dead. His date of execution was set for November 29th. His case was automatically appealed to the State Supreme Court in Knoxville, Tennessee, but the court affirmed the verdict and left the sentence to be carried out on the set date. Now, if you remember your calendar, the 29th was Thanksgiving. The petitions were sent to Governor Porter, governor of Tennessee at the time, requesting a change of the execution date because of the holiday. The governor agreed that during a day when families were supposed to be giving thanks, well, it was kind of a wrong thing, and it's the wrong time to have to deal with an execution. The governor reset the date of execution for December 18, 1875. About a week before Christmas. While waiting for the appeal, and later the actual meeting with the gallows, Jack Hunt was visited by many of the locals he thought of as friends. And it finally seemed to be dawning on him and he started to recognize what he had done and what the possible consequences of his actions were going to be. During a visit from several young ladies from the community, former girlfriends, he told them he was not drunk or insane, but really couldn't tell them why he committed the murder of his wife. Even then, he continued to not believe that he would be hung, adding that he cared little about what would become of him. He claimed to only want to know that his wife was at rest. When speaking of his wife, he would often hold back tears or break into crying jacks. As time passed, Jack had to deal with the emotional stress of knowing he was soon to die by being hung. The night before his execution, Jack's mother and one of his brothers came to see him in the Monroe County Jail about 9 o'clock that night, again the day before the execution. Mother and brother smuggled in a small vial of morphine to provide to Jack so he could commit suicide, thinking that it would be a whole lot easier than hanging. What he thought, of course, was that He would take the morphine, go to sleep, and just die. Now, this is not the case when overdosing on opioids. The pupils in the eyes turn to pinpoints. You develop constipation and nausea and painful spasms in the stomach or intestinal tract. You begin uncontrolled vomiting, and your blood pressure drops. Heart pulse weakens, and you have difficulty breathing. Your breathing rate slows and requires much more effort. You may start getting drowsy, but that may be just the prelude to seizures and dropping into a coma. Eventually, your fingernails and your lips turn a bluish color or cyanosis. Hanging or overdosing is neither one of them an excellent way to go. Hunt's mother asked him why he had done what he did and told stories of death threats to his brother-in-law, Farmer. Jack Hunt didn't answer his mother's questions about why he killed his wife. He also brushed off the death threats he had made. Miss Hunt promised to see him again in the morning. This kind of indicated to the sheriff she's not the one that brought her son the drugs. Perhaps it was his brother or somebody else. No one was ever charged with the crime of bringing the Uh, stimulant into him. Around 2 a.m. guards located Hunt in his overdose state. He was lying on the floor of his cell in severe pain and convulsing from the overdose of morphine. He was dosed with another medicine and given some charcoal to force him to throw up or even more so so that when the doctor arrived he was able to pump out his stomach save his life to only meet his fate later on the gallows. Well morning did come. Jack was still alive and that next day Madisonville was booming. There were reported 4,000 people who had gathered to watch them. Sheriff Warren had located and placed 56 armed deputies from his county and from other counties on loan, from other sheriff's departments. These men surrounded the courthouse and the crowd itself in case a problem arose. But everything went well. No one attempted to free the condemned man. And several newspaper reporters wrote that they were impressed by the calm nature of the crowd. Several of the writers having attended previous hangings and executions in other locations noted the difference in the crowd's demeanor this time in compared to other hangings they had attended. Religious services were conducted by a Reverend Colonel Thorpe and Reverend Favor. The sheriff also addressed the crowd saying this was the saddest duty that he ever had to perform in his service to the community. The rope was produced and it was actually the same rope that previously had hung another man was going to be used again after it was finished with Jack Hunt. It was placed above a wagon so the prisoner could stand in the wagon while the rope was put around his neck. The wagon would be quickly driven away, leaving the condemned man hanging and swinging by the neck until dead. This type of hanging setup was not a trapdoor gallows type, just a simple place to a rope to strangle a man there was no fast drop to snack the neck making for a quicker death the prisoner was strangled to death hunt had spent two hours before the event once more with his mother the sight of the hanging just outside of town at the end of the two hours the sheriff told him it's time to go jack both jack and his mother started crying After a moment, Hunt regained himself as best he could. The effects of morphine from less than 24 hours ago were still in his system, though, and it made it difficult for him to walk and to stand. He was taken out of the cell to another room, where he was given a clean shave and able to put on nice clothes and made himself, with the assistance of his brother, as presentable as he could before the Red Mile walk to the wagon be his final ride on this planet. Walking out of the door to the wagon, he told the jailers escorting him that he was prepared to die and thank them for taking care of him. In their descriptions, the newspapers would commend the 175-pound, 23-year-old young man on his appearance and his composure. The condemned man had written a letter to be read at the hanging and requested one of the preachers to read it to the crowd what he had written. His last documented words were as follows. Dear Mother, Father, and Brothers, I will try to write you a few lines to bid you all a final farewell. I do not want you, dear Mother, to be more troubled about me than you can help. I want you to prepare to meet me in a better world where sin and sorrow are not found. Will and Sam, I want you to be good boys and try to get to heaven when you die. There is more pleasure in living the life of a Christian. It looks plain to me now, though I did not think so nor see it, in that light before I sought and believed. I found pardon in a merciful Savior. I do not want any of you to grieve for me, but take warning by my misfortune, and trying to do better than it has been my misfortune to do. Farewell to you all, and may God bless and save you all. Signed, A.J. Hunt Well, all the saloons and other businesses in town have been closed for the day, and as I said, it was a crowd of about 4,000 who had come from all over including quite a few of them from North Carolina where Mr. Clem Davis, the victim's father, lived. Jack walked to the wagon, stepped up, and said goodbye, said a quick prayer, and waited for the sheriff to place the rope around his neck. The rope was placed, that same rope that was used to hang Mr. John Webb of Knoxville, who was convicted of murder and rape, and hung for a crowd of 12,000, he traveled by train, stagecoach, riverboat, and horseback, and by other means to watch the spectacle of the man dying. He'd been accused of murdering a Richard T. Reynolds and raping his wife, Barbara. He had fled but was apprehended in Carryville, uh, Tennessee, in March of 1874. Another good Shade of Blue story for later. That same rope was to be used after it was through this day on Mr. Jacob Harrison in Anderson County, just 11 days from the current event. In Tennessee, until 1913, all individuals convicted of a capital offense were hung. There are no official Tennessee records of the number or the names of those who were executed by hanging. And it makes it kind of difficult to the locate the particulars of these other cases. The black hood was placed over Jack's face after the rope was placed around his neck. At 1.42 p.m., the wagon was driven out from under him without much struggle. In about 10 minutes, a doctor declared him dead. The body was turned over to his brothers to take and He was buried at the New Providence Cemetery in Telco Plains, Tennessee, in Monroe County. Coincidentally, the same cemetery as his murdered wife and their unborn child was. It was discovered she was pregnant with his child at the time of her death during the coroner's inquest. That's our Shade of Blue story for this week. Hope you found it interesting and possibly learned a lesson from it don't let your anger control you you might end up taking a last wagon ride at some point well in the coming weeks remember to be safe secure and responsible for our actions and we'll talk to you guys later check out our website ScottLunsfordAuthor.com or FelonFile.com, where you can also pick up some of our t shirts, and there are some links to some of my books there. Be happy to also hear from you guys. There's some links where you can email us, and we appreciate any information or comments or maybe directions to start researching another Shade of Blue story. Victoria, you've got the control panel back to you. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye, y'all.
0: This has been The Felon File, a discussion on law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and other parts of the world. For more information, you can go to felonfile.com or scottlunsfordauthor.com. Here you can find links to Scott and NumBooks and other information. You can also email us at felonfile at gmail.com. There are also t-shirts and mugs available. You can also buy us a cup of coffee. Or help purchase some of the research material and expenses it takes to do Felon File. Click on the coffee image on the web page to do so. This is Victoria your producer thank you for listening. Have a good one.